Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the Ganatantra podcast on the New Books Network. I am Alok Prasanna Kumar. And I am Saryo Natarajan. And we are very excited to bring to you a special episode today uh, featuring the author Rukmini S. Rukmini has joined us on this podcast. Hi Rukmini, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. It's it's our pleasure. Uh, just a brief introduction about Rukmini before we get into the book that she's written that we're going to discuss, which is called uh, Whole Numbers and Half-Truths. And it's about data in India. Uh, Rukmini S. is an independent data journalist based in Chennai, India. Her work focuses on inequality, gender, caste, and politics. Rukmini was previously a national data editor of the Hindu and now writes independently for Indian and international publications. Uh, We're very glad to have you on the podcast, Rukmini. So let's kick off with usually the question that we ask all our guests. What was the motivation and thinking behind the writing of this excellent book, which for listeners... It covers a number of areas and even today you'll only get a briefest glimpse of what this book is about. So given that it covers so many different areas from a data perspective, uh, what was on your mind, Rukmini, when you decided to start work on the book? So I think something that happens with a lot of um, writers is they have this sort of burning question or burning, all-consuming idea that's been bubbling uh, you know, for a long time. That actually wasn't the case uh, for me. I didn't have a book in me or I didn't think I had a book in me. Um, And this was for a couple of reasons. One is because I've always been a working uh, sort of daily newspaper journalist, which gives you very little time to ever think the, the you know stop and think at length about the breadth of what you've done um and i've i've been a journalist since 2004 i first was a sort of beat reporter and then i moved to data journalism in 2010 um i i'd never really taken a break um except when i had my kids which you know isn't uh, doesn't lend itself to sort of deep considered thinking um, maternity leave doesn't lend itself to that um so i suppose i had been writing all of this work and doing all of this thinking around how what good data can tell us about india as well as what my experiences on the field um, and my conversations with experts had shown that the data misses i spent a lot of time thinking about it but i hadn't really thought about whether it all added up into a sort of grand narrative or or what the bigger question here was. Um, Sometime in 2020, I got talking with with the political scientist Pratap Bhanu Mehta about something. And for this, I had to send him a bunch of uh, articles that I'd written. And when he read, read them at one go, he said, you know, he had very kind things to say. And then he said, you're sort of uh, covering so many meta themes about India, this would make for a good book where where you could look at uh, 10 big questions and sort of look at what the data says about it. And that's the first time I really sort of thought that uh, this could be pulled together into a book. And I think one of the quest- one of the problems with being a daily journalist is it leads to a sort of uh, hubris where you feel that that you or one of your friends or colleagues has said everything because something is being said every day. 
but um, it's important to have that lesson in humility that sometimes it's not added up to anything. And I wouldn't say not added up to anything, but not added up to a big cumulative step forward in public understanding. Uh, so I think part of the reason I hadn't thought about the book is because I felt all of this was known. I keep writing about the stuff, others do too. The stuff is well known. So it, it was a good sort of reminder to me to begin talking to uh, my agent, Anish Chandi, who runs the uh, literary agency Labyrinth, as well as uh, Kartika Vike at Westland, uh, my publisher, uh, a good reminder that extremely engaged people who know about the broad issues too found enough surprising in, in what I had to say. And um, then it felt like, yes, I could see a book coming together and I, I pulled uh, this together um, as a sort of a way to bring together the work I had done, as well as uh, add on, or, you know, add to it, as well as sort of to use a word that I usually hate listening to, problematize it a bit, um, and not present everything as fact or certainty because I had come around to the feeling that this was not all fact and certainty. So that's that's how the book came about. No, that's fascinating, and I I, I was at least for myself a, a very enthusiastic reader of your pieces at the Hindu. You recall we've had many conversations and discussions about uh, the data relating to sexual assault cases in Delhi and then in Bombay, which you did a lot of very interesting work on. For those of you who are interested, we will be putting up some of the links to the articles that we're talking about in the podcast description. So please check them out, uh, which also sort of brings me back to the some of the fundamental points made in the book, which is that it's not as if you're, you are personally generating a lot of the data, except in a few cases. But there is clearly a data architecture there in India. And I have heard this said, though I don't have personal experience of it, that uh, the official data architecture in India the, to collect data about the country uh, on various metrics and various standards is supposed to be one of the best in the world, or, or at least all other things being equal for a country with its resources and constraints. India possibly does one of the best jobs in its data collection. Um, we know our census exercise obviously the second largest in the world but there's also a series in terms of the national family and health survey which comes out much more frequently and we do have a lot of data to talk about but at the same time and as you've just pointed out and i wanted to sort of maybe think uh, elaborate a little bit more on this people don't seem to see that data as telling us the interesting stories or the more accurate stories and we have a bunch of uh, myths so what did you find about this when you were writing this book that you know people you, you see the data you see this big set of numbers and you see the narrative which seems to be you know at 90 degrees to the uh, data itself yeah no a bunch of points in that that really uh, that are really important and that i've thought a lot about um, in the last few years one is you know you led in by talking about how um, for the most part, I'm not personally generating data, and I think this is this came to me very late as a as a realization because when you compare yourself with data journalism going on around the world, you feel that um, scraping and sort of creating new data sets from information that isn't already out there is the cutting edge and is what you should be doing, and you feel that telling stories from existing government data is boring or uninteresting or not exciting or shouldn't be what data journalism is, should be what government press releases are. And um, it's really been an epiphan epiphany for me to realize that that communicating foundational truths about 
the country based on information that should have been widely available and isn't for some structural issues that are solvable now is what I feel uh, is is my broad mission. I don't uh, any longer feel that uh, sort of you know scraping Twitter API to do something is is what I feel is most important. Um, and yes, that that comes back to why is this the case? Why is it that these foundational truths don't exist? Is it that we don't collect the data? Is it that the data is faulty? Or is it that we don't communicate it or a bit of all of it? And um, reading about the history of how Indian statistical architecture came about, even though we broadly all know the contours of it, which is, you know, uh, we know about the uh, colonial apparatus, we know about Mahalanobis. Uh, reading more closely about it really gave me a sense of perspective as well as um, a sense of why things are as they are right now, both the good and bad of it um, uh, to some extent. And, uh, you know, as one of the things to read about this, um, I would highly recommend uh, Nikhil Menon's book, uh, Planning Democracy. I, I enjoyed very much the chapters about um, data and statistics, uh, you know, where he talks about uh, the founding moments and the sort of uh, role that Nehru, Mahalanobis and others thought that uh, statistics should play in the planning of a uh, then poor country. Um, so that sort of uh, sets the tone for, for why India's statistical architecture, um, uh, you know, has been put in place in the way that it has. Uh, sorry, I don't know whether to pause for a minute because I look, okay, so, sorry, it was frozen oh. in my end, so I wasn't sure if it, uh, don't, don't worry about it. Just, no, just... no. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so I think what ended up happening as a result of these, uh, 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 you know, historical processes was that um, uh, statistics were seen as central to, to planning for a country uh, with a very stated ambition of lifting people out of uh, poverty at, at the founding moment. But what did end up happening, and in some ways, this this makes me feel like this needs like a uh, you know Isro Netflix style uh, show, except about uh, maybe the ISI, and in in this case, I mean the Indian Statistical Institute, um, because the the scope of the statistical architecture that was envisioned and put in place then was audacious and far uh, beyond what a country of at the level of um, income and development should have been uh, dreaming of at the time. Uh, you know, it, it, it led to visits from countries overseas, uh, from heads of leaders from overseas. It also led to um, uh, uh, the first uh, large-scale household survey of this kind anywhere in the world, not just in the newly decolonizing world. Um, so what we had then is, in particular, the national sample system this uh, frequently conducted household level, uh, you know, sampling system that was put in place. We also have the census. We have other uh, wings of data collection as well. And uh, this means that we have had um, a standardized, well-vetted, internationally uh, recognized system of collecting statistics for over 75 years now. And it provides a rich time series for uh, economists and others from across the world to produce a truly impressive body of research that rests on these numbers. So it's not just that we have this great architecture, we have incredible research that's gone on around all of this for, for decades now, um, which, which then brings me to 
why is it then that we that we know so little about it or sort of the common person knows so little about it and i think two things have happened one is certainly a failure of communication and i don't necessarily mean uh, communicating the findings i think that does happen to some extent but we've done such a poor job of communicating how this data is collected that we've made it two things we've made it one opaque uh, and and sort of unintelligible to most people which then leads people to be turned off by thinking that they don't understand it rather than the fact that they've just not been explained it well enough that's one and we make it open to um, suspicion which is now something i realize that a huge number of young people in particular treat official statistics with huge suspicion that sometimes comes from a place that's not entirely founded i mean i don't think anyone is here to argue that india's statistics are beyond reproach uh, on all fronts but i do think that the extent of suspicion with which people sometimes regard the numbers to the point that young people particularly young journalists sometimes tell me we don't use numbers in what we do because we think they're all fake um i think this this is where we've come as a result of it so um i i do think that you know we've done a bad job of explaining how numbers are collected i think uh, if you stopped most journalists or many students and perhaps even a large number of economists in their tracks and asked them to explain to you how exactly the gdp is calculated um i don't think you'd be left much the wiser in many cases and as a result you and i are left you know uncertain with how uh, to and without the tools to understand it and then when there are problems as there were a, a couple of years ago when the methodology to to sort of uh, estimate the gdp was changed the instant thing that people's minds go to then is manipulation fudging faking um that sort of thing because you know if you don't know what goes in uh, any change seems um, uh, you know fraught with 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 bad intentions so that's my sort of long winded answer to uh, where are, and the, uh, one sort of final point on the statistical architecture i want to make is that um we you, and you know you you see this in many fields we often paint india's bureaucracy as huge too big massive slow moving too many people uh, but one of the things that india statistics have suffered the greatest from is too few people we do not have enough people employed uh to do the hard job of collecting numbers properly we've moved to part time enumerators with some of our most key statistics which could potentially have an impact on the actual numbers we might actually be underestimating uh female employment for example by not having um fully trained uh, enumerators so so that's that's my final point on uh, what's happening to india statistical architecture now and then we could go on to talk about other pressures on it you know further down sure thank you that was uh, fascinating to hear uh, but i was wondering if i could sort of uh, pull out a little bit from the statistical architecture itself uh, to talk about some of the sort of i guess politics around measuring itself um i mean there's the, there's one school of thought around like james c scott who sort of challenged the assumption of wanting to see like a state um and sort of centralized data architectures and some of the injustices they perpetuate uh, but i'd love to hear your take on you know the notions of measuring versus not measuring at all and uh what 
datafying certain aspects of polity and society might mean, um, both in terms of its implications on the architecture itself, but also in terms of what we what kind of stories we tell about our society. Thanks for that. Um, so, uh, and you know, you, you see this thinking a lot uh, in the um, in the early years around. Uh, you know, this this is in some ways a, a very fifties uh, uh, moment as well to think about this sort of um, you know the, these sort of impulses of uh, of control of um, uh, you know state expansion or state control um, all of that and I think this 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 debate of uh, how much of planning and statistics is is state control and how much of it is uh, welfareism is is evergreen in some ways and we've had versions of it for for decades now uh, i think you know you see echoes of it for example with with the aadhaar discussion as well which is brought down to it in some ways this is the question um in the you know during the pandemic for example i remember feeling very frustrated that we didn't have good data on um uh, real world vaccine effectiveness so i don't mean this from vaccine trials but just in terms of understanding um what outcomes the likelihood of hospitalization was for people who were vaccinated versus not vaccinated in in india um and you know we do know that since these are vaccines that are well studied we do know that we would be seeing it but it was very hard to quantify and i sort of came down to uh, realizing that one of the reasons we did have some information from this is because um, the data that you have from the NHS in the US in the UK, which was using to some extent the same vaccine that we was we were um, tracks a person right from uh, testing, vaccination, hospitalization outcomes, all of that through one centralized number. Um, and you know the, we, the, that was also a moment we started talking about things like a national health ID, and there was um, sort of widespread opposition to that. Uh, but then again, thinking around what a national health ID could have potentially done for this sort of um, you know measurement of outcomes that's that's simply not possible otherwise. So um, you know this this question comes up in in many communities and many forms. I think particularly for people on the periphery, whether physically or sort of, uh, you know, uh, through socially imposed uh, discriminations, this becomes particularly important. So, um, you know, there's excellent work by by two economists at Azim Premji University uh, on Nagaland uh, alone and sort of work around what uh, certain, you know, to me at least it sort of made me think about what certainties from data do to uh, planning and do to, uh, you know, in terms of uh, a, a place's notion of itself, even. Um, so that, that's sort of very thought provoking. And, you know, you see similar uh, cause to think around uh, notions of citizenship which will come up whenever the census is conducted and what it means to participate versus not participate in that exercise um it's all sort of you know i i absolutely do not have an answer on it but i can just i see uh the challenges just you know multiplying as we go forward i think um people would typically have had a sort of sort of view of the census as a benign exercise 
until a couple of years ago even but what our thoughts are on when the census is finally conducted it's, it's going to be a far more uh, difficult way of thinking about it and it comes down to all sorts of you know even questions around um, uh, food and food preferences just this morning i was reading something uh, in the indian express which looks at data from um, the school he- school uh, de- uh, education department in karnataka which in some uh, areas offered eggs to children and in some areas uh, they they were not offered or they were given a choice between eggs and i think bananas and chikki and the numbers that it shows over there in terms of children who did opt for eggs um i have not looked at the data in detail but it would raise questions about whether our official statistics which in which an enumerator ostensibly from the government goes to a house and asks whether you eat meat or not um i think those numbers are far lower than what this is showing for example so you, you know you, given the debates around this going forward what we should think about um, uh, you know self disclosure around contentious issues of this sort um these are all difficult questions and it also makes um, it makes it uh, challenging to think about uh, the relationship between people and the state and statistics and our expectation of those numbers uh, and what it means for people sort of um, safety um, really is so yeah no, i don't have an answer on it but i do i do see it becoming more and more challenging going forward i actually read that article rukmini because uh, obviously i'm sitting here in bangalore and i'm curious about these things and uh for me it it kind of uh, tallied somewhat to i think the last uh, survey which asked about food preferences in karnataka it was only maybe about 4 5% off i see uh, if, if you just add up the so children who chose the bananas and the chickies uh, and compared with the eggs i think it was about 80 odd percent and karnataka yeah. the last uh, census the last such survey showed about 25% or so so yeah. okay. in a sense it it if, if anything of course it it shows that perhaps uh it, it both are fairly robust in there because for me what uh, i think was the biggest uh, takeaway was that hang on the government almost just conducted just a uh, rc something like an rct yeah. <laughs> I, i think uh, because they, uh, it was not even an rct this was just like a trial of a policy yeah across the entire state and we have actual data to make a decision on yeah. nobody can refute this data because you you literally gave a choice to the children and more than 80% of them very clearly said we want eggs yeah. so yeah. in 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 that way I, i thought that was the fascinating part of uh, that, that particular uh, experiment but yeah. since we sort of got into the topic of politics of the data and so on and given that this is a big year for elections in across india mostly state level elections uh, one thing and you know the origins of this podcast were in the context of elections uh we see a lot of data thrown about in the context of elections and after much discussion with a lot of people i'm coming away with the sense that you know everybody sort of force fits theories after the results are out we I, do we actually know what an indian votes on the basis of how they think about these issues do they think of caste gender policies ideas i i get the sense perhaps we don't really know and and i think that's something that your book uh, kind of covers no i agree and I, i think my answer would be that i think we do not know because any sort of sense that we um, have of things below the surface comes from bringing together uh, multiple disparate surveys i am yet to find uh, one opinion poll that i feel 
gets at the heart of uh, sort of you know bringing these questions together and i think uh, so there's a couple of things here i think one of the things that's that happened is some level of frustration with political journalism which would which was highly subjective and in recent times quite apparently um, you know very susceptible to bias uh, leading to a lot of people sort of getting put off from it and feeling that uh, that you come away no closer to understanding anything except that individual sort of experience of that constituency or um, uh, you know sometimes going on to say that state or that country so i think there was maybe before the 2014 elections uh, an extremely sort of strongly felt need for seeing better data uh, so there's been more data but i think better is still something we're some distance away from and i think we have a couple of problems here one is we have a huge incentive structure problem with how we do opinion polling in india which is that it's commissioned by media organizations and media organizations are not interested in studying the citizens relationship with politics and pol- politicians and political parties they're interested in that single number of knowing uh, who's going to win how many seats and i don't mind that i i just think that we have a problem with trying to uh, trying to feed off the sort of uh, what we believe is the uh, uh, you know the spillover from those surveys the other questions that are asked which are things like what is the top issue you will be voting for do you care about uh, you know rank religion caste and then sort of assuming that this tells us uh, important things about um, about the way people vote or their relationship with politics so one of the sort of uh, you know almost pieces of received wisdom that you will see time and again repeated about indian voters particularly in the last 10 years is that uh religion doesn't matter caste doesn't matter this is a post caste society people want jobs people vote on the economy and this usually is through a survey question that is asked about what is the what is the top issue you're going to vote for people will say unemployment economy jobs um and so that is the you know end result and i have been guilty of uh, literally uh, interpreting interpreting such surveys myself because if they are open ended questions you feel like this is this is it this is what people are saying uh, but then the more you look at multiple other surveys you start looking at things that you feel should have all come together so for example if you look at 2014 you'll find that uh, prior to the election a large number of people said that they were going to uh, that they were voting because of economic conditions and because they wanted uh you know improvements in in household like uh, household sort of living standards but after the election in which the incumbent was dislodged um most people said in the same survey in the uh, sort of post election part of it most people said that their economic situation was better than it had been 5 years ago so there's a clear sort of dissonance again uh, there again you see in 2019 that uh, the top issue that people say that they're going to be voting for is unemployment or jobs and then the incumbent which has just presided over very high em- unemployment is reelected uh, which again sort of should lead people to think about whether these question should be taken at face value simultaneously you have surveys where people say things like up to 45% saying that they would want a person of the same caste um uh, you know winning from their constituency you have uh, uh, you know people saying that all of these other sort of dimensions people saying that they don't really mind whether uh, whether somebody has a 
quote unquote criminal background something that i have a uh, sort of i am very frustrated with this having become a central axis around which indian politics is dis- discussed similarly about money uh, you know those we all get in drips and drabs from other surveys and then we sort of put it all together so um, perhaps what we need to do in some ways is to delink the study of um, people's re- relationship with politics from elections and do more quote unquote peace time surveying to try and understand what what people actually think of elected representatives of uh, you know uh, delivery of solutions that sort of thing and i think we also do a very poor job of understanding what i think is a very uh, sort of key axis which is the question of um, identity and self respect and i think uh, when people talk about identity politics it's usually to try and be dismissive of um, uh, parties that at the stand for social justice or or very sort of overtly for uh, um for the empowerment of particular caste groups but i think uh, and you know you find this in sort of casual conversation anywhere in india that i do think that notions of um uh, self respect are extremely central to how many indians view themselves and i do believe that it has to do with uh how politics speaks to people but again this is this is my theory not borne out by data um, but one of the things that i wish um uh, you know polls did a better job of capturing no thank you for that and as a political scientist myself i absolutely hear you on the need to have like more peace time studies and there's almost like a an unhealthy obsession with uh, elections and i also wonder i mean and in that sense my question is about you know what motivates data collection in a particular way um because i guess the first past the post system that you know that india has necessitates trying to link back and find what is that one driver so the obsession with unicausal explanations along with a system that almost incentivizes a certain form of uh, communication of political information so i i you know i i would love to hear your thoughts on what more broadly what drives the collection of data frameworks uh, and specifically in the context of politics and then also you know there's uh, while i agree with the tendency to you know to um critique stories that are sort of just one or examples of one um there is a delegitimization of local practical uh, ideographic knowledge uh, and perhaps there's a need to recognize it in different ways as formal epistemic knowledge so i i mean so i wonder how broader political systems or structures drive the frameworks of data collection and i'll give you an example from a completely different realm um and perhaps not even from politics but uh, you know we did some work on data annotation and labeling and this is for self driving cars and um those those kinds of contexts and what people do uh, mostly in the global south is label pictures of you know electric pole car etc um and one of the big challenges of this and the quality of data being collected is often affected by the fact that uh, annotators in the global south don't know what a llama is or uh, you know or or i can or can't recognize objects like sidewalk but the the architecture that is framed for this data annotation is you know deeply linked to ideas values needs of um, you know global capitalist system so so i'm just wondering if quality of surveys you know partly uh, functional but also partly driven by 
the context and the needs for which it is collected and i'd love your reflections on that and i know we're a little bit you know not going into what we had planned to talk about which is the health and all of that with the book but i would love to hear your thoughts on this sure um so uh, i think some of the uh, at least some of the early vocabulary of how uh, opinion polls were framed in india was sometimes uh, borrowed from a context that uh, you know that was um foreign to india so i think uh, the the fact that questions like um uh, support for a bahubali a sort of local strong strong man or support for people even in the context of uh, money being paid to voters is something that came extremely late to to um opinion polling or to sort of the analysis of this in fact i would even say anything beyond a very direct um, what is your caste are you voting uh, will you vote for someone of the same caste beyond questions uh, you know as basic as that i think these sorts of questions around um, uh, caste and religion have also come very belatedly and perhaps not even yet come properly to uh, opinion polls and i do think this is from um, borrowing uh, a structure and a vocabulary of polling that uh, that was sort of imported uh, in here and, you know the same formats might make sense elsewhere but don't uh, might not do so necessarily here um i i agree that uh, you know there could be you could draw that straight line between fptp um, uh, leading to this sort of mode of analysis but uh, this is something that any again conversations with voters make it very clear that there are there are um, matrices of decisions and those are never unicausal um and arriving at those at least arriving at the factors that make up that matri- matrix uh, should not be should not come should not be rocket science and should not have come so late to the discussion as well so there might be within this within this sort of thali of uh, factors Uh, there is one that drives your decision but we have come no closer to the thali at all and we don't relate the one uh, key part of it to the others at all we don't we don't talk of these as trade offs we don't do things like uh, rank analysis so um, perhaps in a way what we're doing is importing the same fptp to to our uh, the way of asking questions even and uh, i think that does it's just left left us a lot poorer and uh, what worries me deeply is that what is clearly flawed opinion polling has been uh, relied on by uh, those political scientists who work with quantitative data on in india for decades now leading to uh, some uh, established sort of notions around uh, the indian voter that really should have been junked a long time ago given the pretty bad data that they were based on um and i don't think political science has had that sort of reckoning um i haven't seen a, a, a sort of you know open discussion among political scientists who use indian um uh, quantitative data saying maybe we should accept that we've not been relying on very good polls until now and so perhaps these uh what we've taken as sort of definitional about indian voters shouldn't uh i think that we really should reexamine i don't see people uh, attempting to do things like replicating uh, findings with other polls or even conducting 
opinion polls themselves to replicate findings and i do think that a lot some of these would not be replicated if they were asked in in better ways so um, yeah we we've really narrowed our vision of what opinion polling should do but we've built a very expansive um, sort of political theory framework on top of it um, and that seems very precarious to me thanks thanks for that uh, discussion i think uh, rukmini i think that sort of is a call for all of us to think a little bit more critically about some of the established narratives on indian uh, politics but something that you mentioned i think will help us lead into the next question you sort of mentioned about employment and being a reason for people voting and one of the i think it it, it happens on a three month cycle because every quarter new numbers are released and the usual fight breaks out which is are these numbers on india's employment and labor and employment believable now obviously these are sample surveys and everyone can question the methodology but so it it tells us i think something deeper about the state of um data in relation to india's economy that seems to make if if we if we thought there were a lot of concerns about political data and i think with economic data given how much it more it influences day to day decision making in government and even even among corporates um i wonder if we can talk a little bit about what your book discusses about some of the issues with what we think we know about india's economic data yeah thanks for that i think one of the things that's happened about particularly about data on the economy is that criticism of it has been has become so sharply divided along such clearly defined left and right uh, lines that um that it's really sort of stunted uh you know discussion around it because these battle lines have been drawn so clearly and it's always a good lesson in humility to go back and look at some of these discussions and realize just how old they are how how long they've been going on on similar lines so in some ways the uh, discussions that still happen in the op-ed pages of the indian express have really happened for for 40 plus years now on very similar lines so just to sort of break it down a little bit into what we're talking about so fundamentally there there, there are two three ways that you can uh, measure data um you know measure data on the economy in particular and one of it is through um household level sample surveys the other is through more top level data and some of this can be administrative data some of it can come you know from other ways in which you measure uh, the gdp or you measure national accounts data and um most of our discussion around uh, poverty around access to benefits around schemes targeting all of that has come from household level survey data uh, while data on the gdp that's much more you know from above um, is usually made used to sort of have more macroeconomic level uh, discussions and i think what's ended up happening is that there's be- uh, you know there is a little disconnect between this household level data and this national national accounts data and it's also meant that um it along these two lines the left and the right have sort of neatly aligned themselves um and what's ended up happening is that i think sometimes uh, uh neither side has been able to take on board criticisms and uh, it's done a sort of big disservice to to the overall way in which we measure the economy which is we are now in a situation where uh national accounts data typically paints a rosier picture of the economy than household level data does and each side then uh, spends a lot of time in 
trying to find flaws in the other side's way of measuring things. So that's sort of one key, um, uh, you know, fault line, which uh, through better conversation really could could bring things a little bit uh, closer. I mean, I think there are flaws on both sides that need to be taken into consideration. There has been vast amount of, uh, you know, ink spilt on this. People have written about it. Um, uh, Angus Deaton has, you know, considered both sides of it for over 20 years now. And uh, really all of it is, um, makes for great reading. More broadly, what's, what's happened, I think, is that um, our official architecture has not been able to keep up with the sort of high frequency data that uh, we would like on the economy now and that, uh, you know, corporates in particular would uh, want from the economy. And this uh, came to a head really with employment data. So India had a sort of slow moving way of uh, measuring employment. And then the government itself tried to move to a faster system, which was called the periodic labor force survey, which would be conducted every quarter and would be, uh, you know, come out faster. Uh, I think that shift perhaps didn't happen fast enough. Um, and what's happened is that we now have a rich private um, uh, data source for it, which which comes from the center for the monitoring of the Indian economy. So what we've had for the last few years are numbers through which we can actually uh, argue against official data because we now have this uh, sort of rich private data source. Uh, there are criticisms of ways the numbers are collected on both, both sides. There are criticisms of the CMI sample, for example, of not being representative enough. And there's, of course, criticism that official statistics miss, miss a lot of what's going on in employment in the economy. Um, so, yeah, I think what's also happened is some very sort of fundamental breaks from how uh, numbers have been collected in the past, which have led to a huge suspicion around data around the economy. And, and I do like to make a distinction between uh, places in which, uh, you know, there isn't really cause for for great suspicion or hand-wringing and places where there is. And I think some of the things that have had have happened around data around the economy do do give cause to to be concerned. So there's three at least three areas to be concerned about. One was when data on, on unemployment was uh, delayed in 2019, ostensibly because of the election, and then uh, you know released after the election and showed uh, uh, sort of sky high unemployment. Then we had uh, data on household consumption, which was first delayed then pulled back entirely, uh, you know, withdrawn. And now we have a, a slightly methodologically uh, changed way of, uh, you know, measuring household consumption that will come out. And no doubt, some of these same debates by some of the same people will end up happening then because there has been a change in methodology. And then uh, what happened was with the GDP, a sort of a big change in how uh, the GDP was to be calculated, uh, perhaps not enough clarity around how all the numbers were uh, collected, and then some clear problems with how uh, with some of the databases that were used to make this change. And then the numbers were also backdated, as you need to do to show a back series, which seemed to uh, uh, you know give cause to worry that uh, the change in methodology was made to. Uh, make the current government's numbers look better. So we've had these three sort of big disruptions with uh, uh, data on the economy. And yeah, more broadly, I think we have private challengers and not enough nimbleness from government data. You know, that's, that's, that's actually very interesting because I recall uh, 
reading a few months ago, I think for those of you who have context on this, uh, there was a sudden, sudden and sharp drop in India's wheat production uh, due to uh, early onset of winter across North India. And this caught the government by surprise. But if I recall correctly, there was one former agriculture secretary who said, why aren't you looking at private data? Because 20 years ago, when the last time the government was caught by surprise, they went to the private sector and private sector said, yeah, we knew it was coming because we keep track of far more parameters. We have much bigger sources of data collection and the government had sort of, you know, imbibed the, some of those practices and some of those data points. And I suppose perhaps the future, one hopes, is not a sense of competition between, I will say one thing in the private sector will contradict, but the government perhaps, uh, you know, learning from the private sector, that this is a kind of architecture and perhaps this is a kind of uh, importance that we need to give uh, to data collection. Uh, I, I want to, on that note about the economy. Yeah. No, Sorry. I just wanted to jump in with one thing. I think one area where, um, which sort of an analogy in my mind is also when it comes to um, uh, climate data, right? I mean, yeah. the the government had always been the sort of sole source of all data around, um, you know, it either came from the IMD or it didn't come at all. And then I think the, the sort of growth of, um, private weather forecasters has, uh, uh, I do think it has, I mean, hopefully it has uh, helped with, it's definitely helped us as, as users of this information. But, uh, you know, given that there were some calamitous failures of not reading, uh, you know, data that should have been coming up, right from whether it was from the, uh, you know, from the tsunami uh, on the East Coast or whether it was the Mumbai cloudburst of 2005, where, uh, you know, we could have used data that was already out there. It didn't need new collection. It just needed more eyes perhaps on it. Um, I think, I do think that there is place for signals or more 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 people looking at more signals coming from more sources um uh, and you know yeah feeding off each other but i can't see particularly in the economy i can't see it as not being acrimonious because um just because you know ultimately it is seen as a referendum of whether a government is doing a good or bad job now that's a fair point and i think uh that's something to have to keep to mind when you're thinking about the economy uh, but to, I think now that we're coming to the end of the podcast, I wanted to sort of leave with something that uh, since you started writing this in 2020, perhaps you may, you may not have had the full data on this, but since you've run a successful podcast yourself, The Moving Curve, which I used to listen to quite religiously every week uh, where, during the pandemic, uh, something uh, I, I want to sort of steer the discussion a little bit towards health and COVID and a little bit, uh, because I suppose what we've seen over the last two and a half years or three, if you want to stretch it a little bit, uh, is one an enormous amount of data has been put out in the public, in the context of public health for the first time in a long time. Uh, but that data is also, we realize, political in some senses. Uh, like, like, for instance, this whole controversy about the number of deaths that actually took place in India. Uh, I suppose now that controversy has died down a little bit, uh, but uh, this was about a year or so ago. I recall that uh, we had a big uh, discussion about is how much is the government, with, nobody's doubted that the government has missed out some deaths. But I suppose the ranges were from 10x the number of deaths to maybe one and a half times the number of deaths. And this sort of, I suppose, highlighted that uh, even the health data that we're looking at, something very essential and fundamental, there are big gaps there. We rely on 
uh, a data uh, the data collection architecture that perhaps wasn't suited to this uh, high frequency uh, kind of collection of data. And I think Sari wanted to add something uh, to this uh, question also. No, absolutely. I mean, I think what uh, COVID and in some ways the broader conversations around data, climate change and technology for climate uh, has done is that it's uh, brought to the spotlight community initiatives around data collection or traditionally. So even both private and government data collection are often in institutional structures of some sort, um, whereas community data collection measures uh, aren't necessarily uh, that way. So, I, you know, I'd love for you to also ponder on how some of these measures might be understood as well as legitimized. Um, so back to you, Alok. That was, that, was, that was it. So I think we'll have a hand over to Rukmini for our two questions that we have bombarded her with. Sure. Um, yeah, I think, so what what the, um, what what the pandemic and what the discussion about COVID deaths data uh, in many ways highlighted is just how uh, just how poor a job our statistical architecture has been doing of capturing disease surveillance and deaths from disease uh, for a while now and how we have allowed it to sort of atrophy uh, or not uh, keep up to this point and how, how shocking it is that it hasn't been you know, more of a scandal before. So just to give you an example, if we were to accept uh, the WHO's estimates, that would say that uh, COVID deaths were undercounted by, uh, you know, that the underestimation was 10x. Uh, that would have been the WHO's estimate for COVID. In 2017, the last year for which I saw data, um, uh, India officially reported 192 deaths from malaria, while uh, modeled estimates for the same year placed them at 50,000. So that's a 40x estimate, uh, underestimate. In routine malarial um, death counting, there are similarly, or not, if not larger, underestimates for deaths from diarrhea, deaths from TB. And, you know, it's shocking that we that this hasn't been a scandal before. We've not had an international incident with the WHO over estimates of uh, deaths from all of these other diseases while we while we perhaps should have um, and i think you know one of the big problems on that count is that our official architecture has relied on uh, uh, doing a reasonably good job of counting uh, deaths from uh, the public infrastructure only while the majority of indians now access health in the private system and we have just not figured out how to do a good enough job of collecting data from private systems. I I don't see much evidence that this has got a lot better either. So I don't know how that's going to, you know, I don't see immediate improvement in that. In addition, what was supposed to be our surveillance systems that again, uh, you know, uh, were built in a way that was quite awe-inspiring. Uh, how much our surveillance systems uh, fail to pick up is also really something that we should we should worry a lot about, and how poor the publicly available data from what is being uh, picked up from surveillance systems is is really gives me great uh, reason to worry. Um, what happened with COVID uh, deaths data was a combination of a few issues that I think in a way really cuts to the heart of problems with with data in general in India, which is that when you hear of this ten x underestimate, your mind goes to Again, manipulation, fudging, faking, lying, suppression, and uh, uh, it's it's interesting to me to think through how much you know how little, in fact, of this 
is would be explained by these sort of malified um uh, in these sort of malified ways so one is we went into the pandemic with a health system that uh, misses deaths from all diseases we know we do that secondly we go, we are a country that doesn't yet register all deaths many deaths go uh, many deaths occur at home particularly in rural areas and go entirely uncounted while this might not be a big problem at the national level it's a huge problem in some states like bihar which for which the most recent data shows uh, the state only registered 50% of all deaths half of all deaths go entirely unregistered and then cause of death is still something that we are very far from understanding well in india so in kerala the you know most developed state of the country again the most recent data showed that only one in five deaths had a medically certified cause of deaths in kerala even the again the administrative system that's meant to certify cause of deaths has just not developed strongly enough for us to be able to say what people uh, died of so for all of these reasons and then you add to it a pandemic that completely overwhelmed not just health systems but also administrative systems it really it would be a, a real stretch to think that you wouldn't miss deaths in in this case so um you know that that would be entirely to be expected the extent of um undercounting is is something on which um, you know there might be a difference of opinion but there are uh, there are pretty good ways to estimate it i don't think this was uh, voodoo you know mathematics in the way it was made out to be and although it might seem like this debate is now a year or two old it's actually going to keep coming up because we'll we'll keep having you know we're going to have a covid driven impact on mortality for a few years we only have the numbers for 2020 so far in india this this whole who discussion was uh, up to the summer of 21 and india's official numbers are only up to 2020 we don't have official uh, numbers on how many people died in india of all causes in 2021 yet and that is really going to be to me that will be the most uh, sort of controversial number because uh you know all other estimates are that we had a huge spike in mortality in 21 and even if we look at countries like the uk for example i think the uk in 2022 numbers that they've just uh, you know finished compiling registered the highest increase in mortality in 50 years in 2022 so we should expect this um uh, you know but um uh, how, how how much how, how much energy people are going to have to continue to sort of fight this narrative especially when it means an extremely um, strong pushback from the government um, i don't know i don't know how much people are going to be willing to have this uh, discussion at the same pitch again but yeah so sort of broad takeaways from this for that uh, our health um, um, our health sort of management system and administrative capacities to count disease and death uh, need a lot more work not just for covid for all you know all disease um miss deaths are to be expected in fact trying to argue that you didn't miss any deaths makes no mathematical statistical health sense at all and so accepting that all countries would have missed counting some deaths doesn't seem to me a big stretch it doesn't point to having done a worse job of uh, managing the pandemic than anywhere else which i don't think india did a worse job than than you know everywhere else it doesn't point to manipulation and fraud because i don't think that's what led to the numbers being missed but it 
but by consistently refusing to accept that there were any excess debts that's that's a problem that's when we get into problem territories and just to sort of finally come to um, uh, Sarayu's point and it's actually a sort of apt day to be talking about this as well um, from the beginning of the pandemic um, one of the things that we have had in India is uh, pretty good data coming in from all state governments separately but what we did not have is a consolidated national effort to bring that bring those numbers together and so um, a sort of volunteer driven community effort called covid19india.org came together to bring all of this data together um, it was again i repeat official data no new data was being collected but it was being brought together and made uh, public um, you know in a way that was not uh, available that remains not available um, that that initiative ended in october 2021 and another group called COVID19Bharat.org took that on and we've been doing that now uh, since October 2021. So today we've announced that uh, at the end of January, we're closing operations for COVID19Bharat.org. And in a way, it sort of, uh, you know, talks to me about both the, <coughs> some of the most amazing learnings about what community uh, the the sort of public spirited data community in India can do as well as the the limits there. And what it can do is it can really bring together a resource um, that is um, of world class quality um, that is not expensive, but that is driven by excellent talent who are so public spirited as to be anonymous and do this on a volunteer basis. So all of these. Um, you know, wonderful silver linings to learn about. Um, and they can sort of put this together and make this information available to the point that even government, the economic survey, for example, used, used this data in past years. But the limits to it are sort of human limits, which is the ability to then continue to carry this on uh, year after year is, uh, is difficult. And what's happening now, for example, is that uh, most state governments have stopped putting out these bulletins themselves as state resources get transferred to other things. You know, there'll be other epidemics, there'll be, uh, you know, monsoon fevers, there'll be all of these things that state resources get moved to. So um, in the absence of that, since this data is, was not being collected uh, anew, it was only uh, putting together what states were willing to do. Um, the combination of sort of the limits of what um, pro bono work can do, as well as um, what we have to work with, given that states had stopped putting bulletins out, has led to um, our decision now to discontinue COVID-19 Bharat at the end of this month. This, of course, comes only as a result of uh, both numbers being low and vaccinations being high. If, if numbers had continued to be high, uh, despite all of these reasons, we would not have stopped work. But um, yeah, that sort of sort of underlines many of my learnings about uh, community-led data initiatives during the pandemic. Thank you so much, uh, Rukmini. And uh, I think we'll have to bring this discussion to a close. Like I've said, uh, we could have had this for at least another hour, if not more. Uh, but uh, time constraints means that I think we have managed to cover a fairly a, a lot of ground. Uh, in the last hour or so that we have uh, discussed uh, this podcast. Thank you so much uh, for sparing your time, uh, Rukmini, to talk about the book. Uh, the book is, of course, Whole Numbers and Half-Truths. Uh, please do check it out online. It's available on Amazon and most other places. Um, and uh, with that, on that note, uh, I'll say goodbye uh, from me, Alok Prasanna Kumar.
and me sarayu and thanks to our producer uh, afra who's helped us put this podcast together and thanks to new books network uh, we hope to catch you soon in another episode uh, see you all and have a nice day thank you so much for having me thanks rukmini it was thanks, lovely thanks. to hear you yes bye bye thanks am i uh... yeah yeah i think i'll stop Perfect. let me just stop recording yes.